Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. So, going to see a therapist is sort of like going to an international restaurant. <laughs> it's a matter of expectation and acquired taste. Uh, I tried to pick a food. I'm really not one. Either to go to restaurants or to try too many different things. I'm pretty basic when it comes to uh, palate, taste, preference. Uh, but sometimes either the social company that I keep and a social context company that I keep, or maybe just on a whim, as he used to say, a wild hair, uh, I might try something different. For instance, Russian food. <laughs> I want this to be anything against any ethnic or cultural group. But you don't see a Russian restaurant every day. And so for me, I thought, hmm, this may be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, particularly since I may not be going to Russia anytime soon or would know of a genuine bona fide person, <laughs> native from Russia, uh, that might know how to cook. I might end up going over to their house for lunch, breakfast, dinner, whatever it might be. So take advantage of such opportunities. How my mind was working on that particular day. So I go in and I sit down and uh, for the most part, a restaurant is a restaurant is a restaurant and it's all kind of set up the same way. So there really wasn't anything different about that. But when I sat down with the menu, it all began to change. Though it was in English with kind of Russian in italics to the right or left, I guess to let me know, I think it was to the right, to let me know, I suppose, what it's supposed to be called, but I would have never, could have never, didn't, would probably never be able to be capable of in any way, shape, or form deciphering <laughs> the alphabet, what it looked like in Russian, etc., etc. Uh, the prices were, <laughs> though, in English, so I can see what the prices were pretty easily. But fortunately, I don't buy food at restaurants based entirely on cost, although that could be a factor. Maybe it is sometimes. But it was a guessing game, and the person that I am, I felt a little bit reckless. I went ahead and just said, well, let's try this and this and this, and I kind of tried to guess at what it was that I was eating. <laughs> Still, after the fact, and it wasn't awful, and it wasn't horrible. Actually, it was pretty tasty. There's some aspects of it, though, that I didn't like, and some things I would not order again, and some things I didn't get past looking at and uh, decided not to put them in my mouth. So as after it's over with, I'm telling, much like I'm telling you, I'm telling a friend of mine about my experience at this Russian restaurant with international cuisine at this Russian restaurant and uh, all of these finer details. And his question was, was it good? <laughs> I said, oh, it's hard to say because I really didn't have much in the way of knowing what to expect when I got there. Now, it's taken a while. As you can tell, I packaged it a bit, tried to put it in proper perspective. 
And after the fact, I'm going to declare. <laughs> Relatively speaking, it was good. It was okay. Still feel a bit ambivalent about it. Uh, in absolute terms, though, I don't know how to measure that. I still prefer basic, I'm a meat and potatoes sort of person. I still prefer basic cuisine, American cuisine, cheeseburgers, french fries, pizzas, those type of things. So, psychology today, June of 2022, treatment therapy section. The question every therapist should ask, actually questions, every therapist should ask, well-being is elusive even in the therapy room, but a few deceptively simple questions can get at it and why it's missing by Mark Rigo, MD. Whether in the therapy room or outside it, there are two questions that prove invaluable in helping people understand their distress. They cut through the verbiage of symptoms and reflect information that everyone knows about themselves. Most people, these two questions, most people, including therapists, never ask these questions, but they should be asked whenever possible. Do you feel like yourself? Question number one. The first question is universally relevant and extremely important at both the beginning and the end of treatment, as well as at checkpoints along the way. It applies to any mental health disorder or ongoing life challenge, and everyone immediately knows the answer. Do you feel like yourself? The question rarely appears in patient records, yet after working diligently to figure out what might be wrong or whether an ongoing treatment has had a positive effect, I have asked it of my own patients countless times so that we could both know exactly where things stood. It offers a bridge both to those patients who aren't yet sure what's wrong and to those who aren't quite ready to speak their challenges aloud but still feel compelled to seek help. What's missing? If the answer is no, the follow-up question makes it easy for a patient to zero in just what is bothering them on just what is bothering them. What is missing that would get you back to feeling fully like you? That's the second question. What's missing? Because the person's mindset has already been focused on the universal feeling of being yourself, it becomes easy to say why they are or are not fully at their usual baseline. Things like, I'm still very tired. I still feel blue very often, or I feel better but still have no sex drive come immediately to the patient's mind. Whether someone feels like themselves is, in my view, the most important symptom in the mental health world. It is really the basis for what we do. We aren't looking for something physically abnormal or out of the range of a blood test or on a blood test. Even if we have such tests someday, the starting point would still be how a person feels inside. Only their mind has access to this information. Not feeling like themselves is the early warning sign that something is amiss. 
Feeling like yourself is like wearing a jacket that fits perfectly. Only you can tell that every inch of that jacket conforms to your body. You know it as soon as you put it on. Feeling like yourself is similar in that every inch of your internal being feels right and normal. Being yourself does not always mean feeling good. You may be feeling sad about something and still feel like yourself. You may still feel like yourself under a layer of distraction or stress. Most people instinctively know this too. Patients have even told me so as in, I still feel down because of my mother's passing, but I am back to myself. In fact, in rare cases, people who have been depressed for much of their life have noted after recovery that even though they have never felt this way before, they now feel like themselves. The questions are testament to the normalizing effect of mental health treatment. We do not have happy pills, nor do we make people happy when they should be sad. We help them return to right and normal, whatever that is for them. As a final note, it must be said that there are some people, such as those who have undergone severe traumas or psychotic illnesses, who may never feel like themselves again. Forming a new self, which may not feel the same, is their therapeutic and life task. Fun, interest, and relaxation. When a person has had a round of therapy or pharmacological treatment, there is often much discussion of just how much better they feel. Are they all the way better or only partially? It can be hard for patients themselves to know the answer, let alone the clinician. Once again, are you yourself can break through the difficulty, that question. There's a final question worth adding that helps when patients and clinicians or patient and clinician are deciding whether the course of treatment has made the person merely better or fully well. In many cases, people will be so relieved to not feel as bad as they once did that they will say, in complete honesty, I feel good. We want people to return to their whole selves, that is well, in order to live their life as fully as they choose. But there is another reason to seek well, not merely better. When people are fully remitted, they are more stable and less likely to have a recurrence of their disorder than if they are only partially better. For that reason, I ask, do you have the capacity for interest, fun, and relaxation? Patients often need a moment to reflect on each component separately, as well as to consider the meaning of capacity. What the question highlights is something the person may have the ability to do, not that they are necessarily doing it right now or much at all these days, perhaps with a job and kids, they have few opportunities for fun and relaxation. But if they did, could they? As with the other two questions, most people intuitively know the answer. Admittedly, it's a high bar to aim for, and given the realities of the modern world, it may be a difficult goal for many, for reasons beyond what pushes people into treatment. But it is something very important to know about oneself. The answer may point to ways to adjust our life to become the person we aspire to be.
beyond therapy. Most of life, of course, takes place outside a therapist's office. Almost anyone, not just those in the mental health profession, can leverage the questions or versions of them to get at their own well-being or that of those around them. At some point, for instance, nearly everyone will find themselves concerned about a friend's state of mind. But it may seem intrusive for a friend to ask deeply personal questions about another's apparent inner turmoil. At such moments, it can be helpful to deploy the two questions, albeit with a twist, starting with, you don't seem like yourself. The friend will perhaps ask for clarification in what way? That provides the opportunity to disclose what has worried you. Perhaps your friend is quieter, not as cheerful, quicker to anger, or changed in some other way. If kept in a conversational tone, such a simple back and forth can help a friend bring their discomfort to light. And on a more personal level, we can all become caught up with the business of life and fall out of touch with our own internal world. It may be beneficial in such cases, cases to periodically ask the same questions of ourself, ourselves. If an honest accounting reveals that we aren't feeling much like ourselves these days or that, we are, or that we're struggling to relax, muster interest in those around us or have fun, it may single the need for a conversation with a trusted friend or a therapist. Mental health treatment and management are more complex than two or three questions, but these are especially, especially useful, not only because everyone knows the answer, but because the questions get to the essence of who we are and how we feel. If your clinician does not ask, disclose the answers anyway. Mark Rigo, MD. The article is entitled Psychology Today, June 2022, under the Treatment Therapy section. The questions every therapist should ask, well-being is elusive, even in the therapy room. But a few deceptively simple questions can get at it and why it's missing. Okay. There's a lot in this article. As simple as it is, it's a lot. It's powerful. But the idea might be brought down in most simple of terms to basically a core concept. And that is, there's a difference between absolutes and relativity. And before I really launch into that, I want to remind you, you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. So, the article goes into, at least with the first question, do you feel like yourself? The idea of necessarily establishing what we call clinically a baseline. You have to know both <laughs> where the person is in a present sense as they're talking to you now, as they're describing their condition now, how do you feel now? And though the article really doesn't get into saying this, I think it implies it. That's where most therapists are focused, on the now. And with that, it's not just the now. There is some concept of expectation. 
some idea of where someone should be feeling. Psychology, psychological counseling, all the, the core sort of disciplines and providers that offer psychotherapeutic or psychotherapy services know fully well what abnormal is. And that in of itself is a bit of an interesting concept because this first question in establishing baseline in the article, the author seems to be suggesting is entirely up to the patient. What is your normal? How do you register it? And that is indeed a relative concept. Most people, because it is <laughs> so insidious, and the term we use, might use clinically, is phenomenological. It's so personal. It's so completely based on you, what you think of you, that sometimes it's even difficult to understand what you really look like or what you should think about you outside of coming to see a therapist. It's hard to get a real read on who you are because it's been you all along. <laughs> your ability to perceive yourself, to measure yourself in such a way as even the idea, concept of self or self-concept or self-esteem, it kind of grows on you. It's those are developmental milestones identification of self, measure of self. And it is comparative or relative to something else, either some other standard of normal or average or an absolute. Psychology, psychological counseling, so focuses upon mostly, and the treatment therein, psychopathology. Now, you could argue... It shouldn't be about that. And there's a few disciplines, particularly the counseling discipline. That's how it emerged. Psychologists were too preoccupied with sickness and pathology and defining it and identifying it. So much so that they were setting such a negative frame of reference or a bar, so to speak, a measurement, so to speak, that you couldn't go see them or you shouldn't go see them unless you were sick. That's a bit of a stigma. You go around telling somebody, well, especially someone who has never really considered who they are or maybe hasn't come to a full realization of self, who they are, or what it's supposed to be other than themselves and the more immediate environment, social environment that surrounds them, which could itself be rather sick as most of the pathology that we learn or acquire through a process of Social learning or socialization is a direct result of pathology in our environment, social environment, our cultural environment. And as I'm trying to speak to, it's hard and difficult to know sometimes even that we're sick until we're so sick that we feel like we got to go talk to somebody about it. But getting back to counseling, counseling was always intentioned to be focused on development, recognizing that at any moment in time, again, there's going to be some struggles along the way, there's going to be new experiences, you're going to achieve different stages through your different stages of development, different milestone moments or moments where you're about to notch or establish a psychological milestone. Not only sense of self, but another example of that might be agency, independence, you're separate from your world, 
you can have a choice. You don't have to just be fatalistically so in a predetermined sort of way, deterministic sort of way, a product of your natural environment, your social environment, your psychological environment, your genetics, your biochemistry, what you were born with. That wasn't even something you chose. That was something that was given to you through a combination of paternal, maternal genes. So if you're going to change that, you have to first be aware of it. You have to understand who you are as well as have some idea of what you want to be. Yes, it's important in a relative way to establish a baseline or a baseline in some measure of relativity to what you have been, but we don't want to forget the fact that then outside of a relative standard or term for what, once again, the article, going back to the article, what it seems to be capturing is what is the best you can be? When it talks about better, it's a little different than well, <laughs> or when it talks about what you were before all this started to get to the place you decided to come see me as your psychological counselor, psychotherapist, versus what you really want to get to, and ultimately what is your not only capability, your capacity, but your capability, your aptitude. That includes genetics as well as the psychological aspects of will and choice. Again, once you know who you are, once you understand the principle of agency, which means you have the power to influence or change your course and direction, what you want even aspirationally, from your life, once it comes across the, the screen so you can see it, or once you have a realization, uh, even problem solving. If you make mistakes, you have to brainstorm to come up with a better answer. But you also have to know you can change what you've done to get a different result. May not be the identical situation, but there's certainly a lot of situations that are very similar and you can learn a lot and learn about learning and learn about problem solving. All of that represents an opportunity of choice to do it differently, to change. Even self-actualization isn't so predetermined in the sense of genetics or what you're born with, but could be in some sort of way, nonetheless, as much measured relative to who you are, the ideal, what we all should be in some aspirational dimension, there's a universal quality that we all aspire to, I hope. <laughs> it's very general sort of stuff. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Don't kill people. Don't kill yourself. Follow the rules. Be a good member of society. Have empathy for others. Communicate well. I mean, these are just all sort of generic, very, again, very simple, but, but very important, significant, and powerful concepts. But in that sort of way, it's good to know what you should be, even if you define it in such absolute terms. Now, somewhere between, relatively speaking, again, where you are and where you will eventually end up or you want to end up, and you're the master of your own destiny. You, you get to determine what your life is about, and you are the ultimate, I guess, captain of the ship, commander of the vessel. 
But others can influence you and they can also be a participant. But if you decide you don't want to be anything more, if you want to live your life in some sort of regressive even manner and keep going backwards, if you want to remain in sickness and pathology, <laughs> that's, the, that's the great paradox. A lot of people, many, not a lot, I don't know how many, many come to see me who say they want to get better, but in the end, they really don't want to do anything more than remove the symptoms. I have to accept that. I might, in a counseling sort of way, based on our discussion today in the podcast, I may say, aspirationally, this is what you should be. This is all that we know humans, this is the ideal. And that is, again, not only somewhat culturally determined, but when it comes to identifying pathology and what psychology is, psychiatry and their history and the foundations of those disciplines particularly, are kind of rooted in, they do that by <laughs> measuring that with normal. And there's some presumptions. They create a manual. They publish a manual, at least the American Psychiatric Association does, that captures all the symptoms that are disorders or abnormal. It's an absolute sort of concept. We measure patients by that in order to come up with a diagnosis. Oh, you're having this symptom, that's not normal at least in relative to what we know the course of not only normal development, but in this case disordered or abnormal development, should or shouldn't be. And then we say, well, that's probably something we should change. But somebody might say, well, I'm quite satisfied with that. What I want is to sleep at night. I'm okay with the depression. I'm okay with some lying, <laughs> some cheating, some stealing. It's a relative thing, and that's okay. But it has to be what their choice is, what your choice would be if you come see me. See someone like me who does what I do. Seek professional psychological counseling, that type of assistance and help. But this notion that there isn't an absolute or that everything that we establish as a baseline would all be somewhat based or contingent, as in basis, contingent upon what you think is normal, that's a lot of truth. And I think this is the first question that in the article that we read today by Mark Rigo, that's what he's trying to capture. Is that relative to who you are and what your narrative is in life, it is important to be respectful of your choice and decision. But it's probably equally important to at least acknowledge, but not everybody has to stay there. After all, maybe you won't know what to expect. <laughs> you won't even know, going back to the analogy, the story I told at the front of the podcast, what's on the menu unless we publish it in English. I could speak Russian to you. It may all look Russian to you. You may have no idea what you're getting until you see it, but even when you see it, you may still decide, ah, I have to taste this to know. That's all part of that phenomenological, that experiential, empirical dimension of determining what's best for you. But I at least should tell you what's on the menu. I should at least describe for you what's available. Uh, give you some idea. <laughs> Ask the waiter or waitress. Ask the server gender neutral. What indeed is this 
thing on the menu. And I can explain it, but it's going to be relative to them too, and their description is going to be subjective. Another word for another word that correlates with phenomenological. It's your perspective, but I should responsibly so as a professional offer you some objective standard. In that way, even if it may be somewhat relative, and the DSM is Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, is field-based or uh, established in what they call field trials, field being out in the real-life circumstance. People bring in the data. They can recalibrate it on what we now think is normal versus what maybe 50 years ago would have been construed as abnormal or therein approximately when all this began with the DSM and the first edition of it and all that. Things do change and there's a certain degree of relativity. But don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill people. Socially, it's more adaptive to cooperate and to get along. You can't go around imposing your will lest at some point somebody else bigger and badder than you is going to come along one day and start to impose their will. You get the picture. There's some things that seem to go, adaptively speaking, without having to really say. But if you get lost in the weeds and the socialization, the cultural sort of social learning, the cultural models are not really, not only really fully established in terms of the potential for the ultimate highest level of adaptive functioning, but maybe there's a bit of regression generationally. Maybe you've fallen off the mark and one generation to the next, you're just part of that chaining of generation to generation. You're in a slide. Somebody should come along and say, hey, wait a minute. It could be different. And in some sort of way, naturally speaking, evolutionarily speaking, it is survival of the fittest. And what's the fittest? The most adaptive. It may take a while to get there, but if you slide too far into it, time passes you're going to start to see, this is not good for me. This is killing me. Us. All of a sudden you wake up one day, it's probably not good to be so selfish or self-centered as to measure everything by what I feel or what it feels like to me. So it's useful, but it's not everything. And it's always done, and I believe the article's intention is to highlight this as a missing component, but I don't think it's to be dismissive of the fact we all know, in the end, if what you're doing isn't healthy, what we're not doing in a healthy way socially will come back upon us. The consequences of that... And there'll come a point of probably fail-safe where some of it will be remediated like it can be individually, but maybe in social or cultural context. But we should never lose sight of the standard. And particularly if it's worked well and it's been empirically established, scientifically established over time, don't go tinkering too much with it because that's really what science is supposed to do. Highlight the truth establish an empirically research evidence-based standard of what is optimal and ideal. Now, you can choose again to go off path. 
You can test different theories. You can be the guinea pig. You could change or modify your life. But do it at your own peril. It's not my job to make you healthy, right? It's your job to tell me what you want to do and my job to inform you of the consequences, which is why I do go to school or did go to school, continue education, I'm still schooled, in only but the most recent data we're getting ready to come out with or they are getting ready to roll out or have most imminently published the next edition of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I'll be studying it because they will have discovered some different things, some things have changed. It's an, it's an empirical study, but it's more naturalistic observation than it is contrived laboratory sort of experimentation or research but at the same time, it's just a sound, and it takes, and its basis is combination of both controlling as well as studied, controlled studied studies, as well as more naturalistic observation. But I'm going to read that. But if it goes too far off the mark, we'll see pathology. Hopefully, we'll be able to continue to connect the dots. Hopefully, we won't lose sight of what has been established already simply because we want to test something a little different or maybe, just maybe, even when we present it objectively, wellness, being well versus being better, the person really understands the implication of that choice. So then the second question that the author suggests is missing oftentimes, just that, what's missing if the answer is no, the follow-up question makes it easy for a patient to zero in on just what is bothering them. What is missing that would get you back to feeling fully like you? So, I took a pause there. So, when folks go, I want to say, into the hospital, inpatient, it's an extreme uh, at that point, they've pretty much demonstrated they are not able to operate with proper agency, making proper choices, as in, again, what is the difference between, well, maybe not even better, but sicker. There's a lot of, again, reasons for that, some of which the article captured, chronic mental illness, genetically predisposed, uh, that in combination with really unhealthy and sick environments, social environments, cultural environments, trauma, there's just a lot of factors that go into that. Lack of information, knowledge, lack of awareness, psychoses, just a lot of things. Suicidal thinking, homicidal thinking being the ultimate punch to the ticket. But once I go into a hospital, the standard currently is not to fix them or make them well. The standard is to return them to their prior level of adaptive functioning, relative again to who they are, and restore whatever it is or whatever it was that now or was then upon admission now is missing 
so they can then go back home or back into the natural environment, social, cultural, physical environment, and then continue to do this thing we call developmental maturation, growth, to get to the highest order, highest level of not only self-actualization, but the highest, most adaptive, evolutionarily sound survival of the fittest. The measure, the greatest measure of being fit or the fittest would be adaptability. What we know to be the basis of those core premises of don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Don't kill one another. Don't kill yourself. Facilitate, grow, learn, be healthy, be well. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's bad. It just means a hospital isn't the best place to treat that person or treat that person with that target in mind. It's all part of restoring them to a place where they can hopefully, with the proper supports, community-based supports, not inpatient, not hospitalization, but community-based supports, outpatient psychotherapy, whether it's partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, family counseling, Weekly, bi-weekly, intensive outpatient would be multiple times partial. would be daily <laughs> over the course of a week. The notion would be, though, that's where that work needs to take place. But it doesn't necessarily mean we should be satisfied with sick or anything as with contrast to well. Sick. Sort of ideals, aspirations especially if they're ultimately harmful to self or others to the point of directly resulting in imminent, sort of immediate risk of death. That's got to be, I think, in some ways, the ultimate measure of fitness, adaptability. Not that death may not be part of that. That's for another podcast. People die, people get sick. Sometimes it is, as with chronic illness, hospice care, it is a relief. It is a release, and depending on how you kind of conceptualize reality and whether there is or isn't hereafters or other dimensions of life or reincarnation or whatever you want to call it. And that's all speculation, right? I mean, that's way out there beyond empiricism because it's something that nobody could easily say people come back and tell you about that. It's not a common report. Some report that, but it's not a common report. And you know, almost have to then see that phenomenologically or subjectively. The reports. But this idea, though, that for the most part, harming self and others is the ultimate standard. That's an absolute Pathology, though it may be a more imminent or immediate sort of result or consequence, could also be very slow and progressive. But the whole disease model presupposes, ultimately, if not corrected, it's going to contribute to premature death, the end of your life. And most likely, I was going to say potentially, but most likely compromise the quality of your life. I don't care how relative or how 
necessary, possibly beneficial? Asking these two questions would be to help you understand baseline in relative terms to the person and maybe, again, modify expectations a bit so that it's more realistic, so you don't enter in with some unrealistic hope of something that is so aspirational it's impossible to do it. Again, the article speaks to the difference between better and well. But we can't lose sight of that. I don't think the article is suggesting that. And I, for one, am definitely cautioning anybody to necessarily be as professional or even as the article would take it to helping each other. <laughs> Somebody you're concerned about saying, well, okay, I know for you, you seem to think drinking daily is something you can do, alcohol that is. And so far it's not killed you, but I just need you to know, in the end, <laughs> everything we know about science, everything we know about your body, everything we know about the disease model, everything we know about the disease process is, not only is it going to physically increase the risk of harming you, ending your life prematurely, too soon, sooner than might otherwise, should we have not drank daily, you not have drank daily, you might have expected your life expectancy in years to have been different, but it's going to alter the quality of your life, and it's going to corrupt or disrupt or <laughs> cause problems with your psychological well-being and functioning. Not only functioning in immediate terms, but people who drink at times, particularly if they're under the influence of alcohol or the effects on an emotional, psychological level, they need a lot of care. They can get regressive. Not to mention the fact that alcohol facilitates denial. It not only gooks up or gumps up or whatever the circuitry so that you're not able to think clearly, but it also causes you or it aids in you running away. It can cause, I guess, if it clouds your consciousness so much that you can't discern reality and you don't know what's real versus what otherwise is, is a product of being intoxicated, but it facilitates not dealing with problems, not growing, not maturing, not adapting. You're not fit. You're not going to achieve wellness, even if wellness might then also be somewhat relative to your capability or capacity, again, your aptitude. We still should be aspirational to the highest level possible. Otherwise, you may quit too soon. Then you say, well, that's just a lot of work and it really isn't me and I'm quite all right if I overeat or if I overdrink or if I don't take care of myself psychologically. I can tolerate sadness and depression. It's, after all, it's just my personality. Sanguine. <laughs> Melancholic. I see the world as a pessimist. Okay, that's true. It probably won't immediately kill you and it's not going to render you so at risk of harm to self or others, we're going to put you in a hospital. And you may not have to go see a psychotherapist to psych receive psychological counseling. But you will influence the world around you and ultimately we know that's not going up and most likely it's not even maintaining status quo and you may take other people down with you as that turns into such a downward sort of progression or movement. And ultimately, I do believe, somewhere along the continuum, from where you are to where we know 
research, evidence-based, you'll become, based on profiling, yes, DSM, yes, genetics, did your mom and dad have problems, yes, all we know this to be genetically predisposed, you're at higher risk than others, depression, alcohol, drugs, whatever it may be. You may look at me and say, well, I'm not ready yet. And I'm going to say, okay, just want you to be aware. <laughs> but at least I'm helping you read the menu. And you might want to stick with meat and potatoes if that's really what you're inclined to be. Or if you know that that's healthy for you, <laughs> don't go eating stuff that may not be good for you. I always wonder who cooks it too, who prepares it. I don't ever eat anything anybody brings me if I don't see it cooked. I There's some people that I might trust, but generally speaking for me, if I don't live with them, I don't see it prepared. If I don't know how they handle it, the food that is, I'm not going to eat it. Now you can, again, get a wild hair. You can experiment. You can try something different. But I'm going to encourage you to be cautionary. Maybe that's a little bit phenomenological. Maybe that's a bit of a subjective bias on my part. But ask the waiter. Ask the waitress. Ask the server. <laughs> and if you're feeling not like yourself and you know somewhere intuitively at some level this is probably not moving toward even better a return to where you were however long ago it was when you last felt fairly okay. But still, even in light of that, not aspiring to the best you can be, maybe you should go talk to somebody. Psychological counselor, psychologist, counselor, social worker, psychiatrist, all those core providers, we all do for the most part, the same thing when it comes to the psychotherapy part. Psychologists do more testing. Psychiatrists are the only one that could prescribe medication. But we're all equally, legally, ethically, clinically trained, educated to diagnose and treat mental health and behavioral health concerns. And we're thankful. <laughs> we know about sickness, but we're also thankful that we still have some out of that awareness of what it should be, even it's going to seem a little absolute, a little bit binary, a little bit dichotomous in the way of black and white thinking, but that's how we kind of begin to measure things. This is what we know to be sick is the opposite of that. Is that really what well is? And maybe it's what well is, but maybe aspirationally, we have to modify our expectations a bit. But I guarantee you, after a few days, even if you don't know what to expect when you go to the Russian restaurant, after a few days, there's some things on the menu that you probably liked. And when your friend says, was it good? You could say, maybe, yeah, there was parts of it that's good. But going back, should I go back? I'll have a better expectation. Ah, this is not what I want, but this is. Or if it really wasn't good, if it made me sick, I'm probably not going to go back there. At least not to that restaurant. Nothing against a particular ethnic group or particular ethnic cuisine. It's just either my stomach is not made for it or that restaurant, the chef, sous chef, 
the kitchen staff were not practicing the best methods of hygiene. <laughs> or, again, maybe they were feeding me something that probably I wouldn't eat if I knew what it was. But if you come see someone like myself, we're going to be straight up with you. We're going to understand where you are, where you want to go, what you want it to be. We'll at minimum try to help you get back to better. But we're also going to tell you what possibly wellness is. So that you can not only know what you're aspiring to, if you should choose to aspire to it, but also know what it is so that if you choose not to, then we know what is healthy, adaptive, fit, based on study, research, evidence, clinical trials, field trials, experimental research. All of those things that otherwise is the only way to know what's real and true. And it should be somewhat absolute in that sort of way. Yes, there's always new information. Yes, we will modify that. Yes, there's a, a reason for continuing education. Yes, we don't know everything just yet. But a lot of this real basic stuff, <laughs> ultimately, particularly as it moves toward don't kill yourself and others, it's measured by the highest standard of adaptability, not only life, that's the highest measure, but also in a relative sort of way, quality of life. If we tell you something is empirically established as bad for you, maybe you should take that in consideration. But maybe that's good information, good feedback. Still your choice. But maybe that's good feedback. Hopefully, again, that's what the podcast does. It gives you a lot of good information. And my intent is to understand that you're going to interpret it subjectively, phenomenologically, what's best for you, what I offer, and that I'm making good disclaimer between what is subjective, opinion, versus what is absolute, what is otherwise empirically established. And that's why we used psychology today as a basis to begin the discussion. Because for entry into the journal, psychology today, there's a panel that determines whether or not the research, the information has been, meets the highest standards, again, of empirical study. Natural observation, but also experimentation. Research that is experimental research. So we know that what we begin with is the best information. And then whatever we do to interpret it throughout the podcast is our best intent to not move away from it, but to sort out the nuances of it as it might then be relative to you. With that thought in mind, though, I want to remind you that you're listening to Word with Dave Clay and inviting you back. In the meantime, wish you not only the best of health, but also good mental health.